Hi, this is episode one of this podcast. Um, This is my first podcast that I have ever done. Um, But I felt like finally getting started because of the things that have happened recently in the United Methodist Church around LGBTQ inclusion. And um, to start off the conversation, I wanted to uh, share with you a sermon that I preached at Gathering of the Orders. It was when all the California, Nevada clergy from our annual conference, from the California, Nevada annual conference, came together and I was given the great opportunity to preach in front of everybody about what gives me hope. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about hope, uh, especially during these times that may be difficult for folks. Uh, We're in a period of mourning, a period of grief, and, you know, it's important to kind of be able to sit in those feelings and to honor those feelings, but to be able to move forward too. So this first episode is dedicated to that process and that conversation. Welcome to the Gumberza podcast, where we explore the intersections of social justice, faith, and action. I hope this helps us continue growing and serving God by serving the people. I am your host, Janelle. Here's things that may be new to you. Alright, let's get started. So, the theme of Gathering of the Orders was around hope, so I was asked to preach about hope um, in front of the whole body of clergy which included DS's, district superintendents, I mean, and the bishop. And I was given the text from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 13. I generally do not like to preach on Paul if I can avoid it. Um, But that's the text that I was given by a fellow queer clergy. So that's kind of funny. Anyway, I'll read the text real quick for you. Romans 15 verses 5 through 13. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall provide hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that text, I wasn't very fond of it because it's kind of dry, you know, Um, not into Paul's writing, like I said, but um, I did what I could with the text and mostly just focused on hope. And given that um, if I felt like if I was going to talk about what gives me hope, then I needed to tell, tell you all a bit and tell the 
gathering of the orders, <laughs> the or the body of orders, um, a little bit about who I am, because I don't want to just give a story of hope without context, you know. The various identities I carry in my very being make up parts who I am. I don't mean identities, but like aspects of my identity, aspects of my being. I'm a child of immigrants. Uh, my parents are lifelong Methodists, and in fact, I'm at least third generation Methodist. My grandfather on my mom's side was a district superintendent in Manila, started some uh, popular United Methodist churches there, or Methodist churches there. My mom's brother, my uncle, um, is a retired pastor in California Pacific in CalPAC Annual Conference. And after giving the sermon, I had learned that my grandfather's brother was also a pastor in the Methodist Church too, my grand-uncle. I did not know that. Um, yeah. My father's grandparents helped to start the first Methodist church in Tangos, Navotas. It was an old gambling house, I was told. My parents were married in Central United Methodist Church in Manila. My parents immigrated from the Philippines in 1972 with my oldest brother, and they ended up in San Diego. Had my other brother a couple of years later, then about 10 years after my parents and brothers had made their home in the U.S., I was born. So not only am I a child of immigrants, I'm a second-generation Filipino-American. Shamed for not being Filipino enough. Shamed for not looking American enough. Uh, because of my skin. Because my culture makes me a perpetual foreigner in this country. My parents worked hard to instill in me Filipino culture, food, and language. Growing up, all the schools I went to were 45% Filipino. But everyone was Catholic. Uh, I never had a woman pastor my home church, and any woman pastor that I did know of was always held at a double standard. I'm also part of the LGBTQ community. I have an invisible disability, a mood disorder. And so these various aspects of my identity I carry with me at all times. Sometimes they contradict one another when uh, groups I share identities with have conflicting interests or differing viewpoints. You know, um... If I'm the youngest person in the room, or if I'm the brownest person in the room, or if I'm the queerest person in the room, I feel like I have to navigate those questions all the time as I move through the world, and especially as I navigate the church institution, or any institution, even in academia, that was the case for me too. And then plus, I'm under five feet tall. Dominant culture doesn't allow for someone like me with all those identity checkboxes to thrive let alone to be someone who should have hope. Systemic oppression has always sided with everything that seems the opposite of what I am. I grew up with mainstream culture not telling any stories of people like me in pretty much all aspects. While growing up, maybe I was 10 or 11, I already had it in my mind that I didn't want to live past 23 because I thought 23 was too old. Uh, but looking back, I think it's because I had no image for what a future for someone like me could even look like. I grew up with internalized hatred from many different angles. Internalized hatred um, that brought me down a lot. The search for belonging led me to many different places in life. Interestingly enough, it led me to seminary at Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley in 2007. 
And then 2008, I found Buena Vista United Methodist Church in Alameda for my uh, required field education. Now, Buena Vista is a historically Asian uh, or Japanese-American reconciling congregation. Reconciling meaning that they're inclusive of LGBTQ people and they formally made a statement about it as a congregation. So I remember going to um, that church at the time. Michael Yoshi was a pastor. He's still the pastor at the time of this recording. Um, I remember going there a few times, you know, saying that I want to be at this Asian American congregation. It's reconciling. You know, I didn't have to choose between any of my identities. Uh, Michael kept telling me to um, try to do my field education in Daly City, but I had grown up in the Filipino American church and I felt like I wanted to experience something different. Plus, I wanted to be in a community that was explicitly open to queer people like myself. So after I met with him, maybe like three times, um, he brought it up to the Ad Council of Buena Vista and they approved and I was allowed to do my field education there. So be an intern there basically for um, at least a year. And then before my internship even started, like school starts in September, um, Michael asked me in July if I wanted to go to the Philippines. So he invited me to my first trip to the Philippines with the Philippine Solidarity Task Force uh, in 2008. And I've been going pretty much every year since then as part of a delegation to look at the human rights situation in the Philippines um, and also leading delegations there. So as someone who has roots and heritage in a country that was colonized by Spain, who used the church as a vehicle for that colonization, and who used the church to wipe out cultures and who used the church to dilute our radical values, often I ask myself questions like, how do we talk about doing the ministry of Jesus without spreading the culture of colonialism and white saviorism? Does having a mindset of we have something that others don't have and that others need, that's something that we perceive they don't have, doesn't this mindset keep us from being able to connect with people in the world? This ministry has allowed me to deeply reflect on those questions through the ministry of presence. This ministry of presence means that we go and we meet people who have experienced human rights violations or human rights abuses and we listen to their stories. We don't go there to build schools, to build churches. We go there to listen and to be in solidarity. We work, our task force works in partnership with NCCP, the National Council of Churches, to ensure that we are always working in response to the poorest and most oppressed interests of the people of the Philippines. To be with those who have little to nothing, yet are struggling and fighting generations of oppression, colonization, and the ways of empire perpetuated by the US. I've met mothers who were outraged at the injustices inflicted on their daughters, mothers whose daughters haven't been resurfaced because their daughters went to see how peasants and farmers live in the countrysides and haven't returned because the military had kidnapped them, detained them, imprisoned them. I've met urban poor folks, urban poor communities who took back land that was rightfully theirs. The government had constructed these public housing or this housing that was supposed to be for policemen, but 
if you actually go to the sites of these houses, you could tell that it wasn't built really for anyone to live there. They were just sitting there empty. And I met an urban poor community who came through and took back um, the housing that was rightfully theirs because it's their labor, it's their tax. I've met indigenous people who recognize land as the greatest thing to pass down to their children and who know that once they leave their indigenous, indigenous lands, that life becomes about money. Why leave when they can grow things on the land, when they can cultivate in the land? I've met political prisoners who organize prisoners while they are in prison and write songs of liberation even behind bars, knowing that their bodies can be caged, but not their spirits. Prisoners who remind me to bloom where I'm planted. Through witnessing this ministry of liberation, I've been able to meet the most hopeful people I will ever meet. Those who are rooted in Asia's first anti-colonial people struggle and Asia's longest people struggle. There's a lot that we can learn from them. You know, um, in the Philippines, we have this value called kapwa. You know, um, colonialism has diluted this value Kapwa to mean to have community that has no tension, to have community that keeps a false sense of peace, non-antagonistic relationships, um, peace without conflict, you know. But Kapwa, in its genuine definition, in its root definition, it means a shared identity. To be able to see that we are one, to be able to see yourself reflected in the person that you see. That is what kapwa means. We also have a word, kapatid, which is the word for sibling. You know, you use it when referring to your brother or your sister, kapatid. The word for sibling means to be of the same cut, referring to the umbilical cord, that we are cut from the same umbilical cord, kapatid. It's from this ministry and from the people I've met that I and others in the task force have been challenged to exercise our creativity and diligence in serving the poorest and most oppressed we have met. We have been challenged to live out this genuine idea of kapwa and this genuine idea of kapatid. It is through this ministry and these relationships that we worked for justice for Jerome Abba, who was detained at SFO by CBP by uh, Customs Border Protection, you know, because our international airports in the U.S. have now become borders, um, have become walls in a sense. Jerome Abba was detained for 28 hours, even though he had a 10-year multi-entry visa to the U.S. Um, we stood there for him at SFO, and then in the in our annual conference, uh, the task force brought a resolution to stand for justice for Jerome Abba and for the human rights violations in the Philippines, um, to stand for justice for those. So we brought it to annual conference where Reverend Sadie Stone presented. And then at annual conference, Reverend Alla Jones recommended pulling it off the consent calendar so that we could review it um, on the floor and so that the whole body would know what happened to Jerome. 10 of that annual conference body signed a petition to do so, to pull it off the consent calendar. And the annual conference body listened and voted in approval for justice for Jerome. 
when it came to Jerome, our church institution was able to transcend borders for a moment. We remembered that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere and stepped into the value of internationalism. Our world is too interwoven now for there to even be something called local or global. We can be nothing less than kapwa, than kapatid. I've been challenged in this ministry to seeing Christ in the face of the poor and oppressed, seeing not just Christ's face in the poor and oppressed, but also to take up the challenge of seeing his strength, his love, his compassion, his ingenuity, his resourcefulness, and his resilience. And I've been challenged to, um, well, I've been challenged in my desire to join in with that, to become one with Christ in not just image, but in being, in being with the other. What I've learned from this ministry is that hope is contagious. But just because we are seen as more materially fortunate than others, it doesn't mean we give hope to those who have less materially, who are less materially fortunate than others. Rather, our hope comes together and forms a synergistic power. Who I am is no longer a hindrance to receiving God's hope. Who I am is not a hindrance to receiving God's hope. It facilitates and is a vehicle for joining my hope with the hope of others that we may radiate God's collective light. And this is not just a beautiful idea, this idea of hope. It's not just a beautiful idea, but a lived reality. Verses eight and nine that I read before, Christ has become a servant so that promises could be confirmed, not something to wait for in the afterlife or that rests in our minds and in our words, but that Gentiles may glorify God here and now so that we may glorify God here and now in flesh, in present time, and for all time. Verse 12 talks about how we, it will come from the root of Jesse. The promise comes through humanity, through the history of humankind, through those who will rise from the soil of our ministry. Our text speaks of welcome and harmony. Verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How can we make ourselves, our beings, who we are, welcoming and in harmony with God that we may be filled with God's hope and yet overflow with it? I think that we can do this by living into kapwa and being able to see one another as our genuine kapatid, to stop seeing ourselves as apart from each other and as apart from our world. We have a lot that we can learn from those who are not in our churches. We have a lot we can learn from those who are not in our immediate communities. And I know that these are trying times. It seems like there's disaster after disaster especially if you're looking at the news but the thing is that the reason why things are getting so hard the reason why evil is trying to fight harder is because we are overcoming is because we are resisting it's because we are not stopping we're only getting stronger so evil has to fight harder to match up to the challenge but we know we will overcome it we know that God will always have the last word. 
So despite all of this stuff that's happened in the United Methodist Church, I know that there is hope because there is life, there is solidarity, and because we are still here and we will continue to be here and struggle. Thank you all for listening. Serve Christ, serve the people. Peace out.